Q&A on all topics for long-term care facilities. A conversation with the healthcare experts at Quality Insights. Good afternoon and welcome to our series of webinars focused on bringing you information about COVID-19 related topics. The information in these weekly webinars is geared toward long-term care and skilled nursing facilities, but we encourage everyone who's interested to attend. My name is Kathy Caudill. I'm a communication specialist with Quality Insights. Today, we'll be having a Q&A on the recent regulation updates, plus other topics related to long-term care facilities. We'll open with pre-submitted questions and frequently asked questions. And now I'd like to briefly introduce today's panelists. We have a few of our quality improvement specialists here today, Deborah Wright, Penny Imes, and Shirley Sullivan. We're also joined by our infection preventionist, Jennifer Brown, and Quality Insights Medical Director, Dr. Jean Storm. All right, here's the first question. Are there changes coming to NHSN reporting? So yeah, so I could take that one. So um, NHSN um, recently has completed their educational sessions on their new quarterly changes. Um, they said that we would see these changes starting this week. And I did go into NHSN today and um, the changes are there. So they did start this week. So at this point, um, only changes um, affecting the surveillance pathways has been instituted. The vaccination module has not been changed yet, although those trainings have been posted and will be next week. So I'm sure we'll see more um, to come on that. But getting back to the surveillance pathway modules, um, a lot of things were removed but there were a couple things that were added. So first in that first tab, that resident impact and facility capacity section, um, testing availability, influenza, supplies and PPE shortages, that has all been removed. They also removed um, admissions admitted with COVID-19, but they did keep um, a positive test. But, but with that, if you have a positive test, they did remove most of the vaccination status variables. They, they did keep um, residents being up to date with their um, vaccination statuses if they're COVID positive. So if they're positive, you're going to say if um, that COVID positive resident is up to date, and then it will do the math and auto-populate um, for those that are not up to date based on your answer for the up-to-date question. Keep in mind um, for this particular question, they do, they do have a slightly different definition for up-to-date and it has to be that the vaccination, there's 14 days or more have passed since that vaccination was administered in order for them to be considered up-to-date if they're COVID positive. If COVID positive doesn't play a, a part or a factor in it, they are considered up to date from the time that they get the vaccine. They did add a section called hospitalizations. So they were very clear to be careful not to confuse this with your new positive tests for the week. So this section, so you're gonna have the section for positive tests. And if you've had any new positive tests since the last time you reported, You'll, you'll note that in the positive test, but then you're gonna look separately since the last time you reported, was anybody admitted to the hospital and have a diagnosis of being COVID positive? So if they were just admitted because they fell and they broke their hip or they had exacerbation of their CHF and that's it, they don't get counted. It's only if they're COVID positive and they were admitted into the hospital um, in, and their COVID positive test within, was within the past 10 days. 
Um, the second question to that will be, were they up to date with their vaccination status? So that's kind of a repeat of what you did up above, keeping that 14-day rule um, in mind when you're answering that up-to-date status. And then when you go over to the next tab, the staff and personnel impact section, everything was removed, your COVID deaths, influenza, staffing shortages. The only question remaining is how many staff have tested positive since the last time you reported. The entire therapeutic section has been removed, um, so that's gone. And then I just also wanted to, um, with this question being asked, there was a lot of confusion during the training regarding the uh, weekly reporting because one slide said they were we were to report weekly and another slide said we were to report one week per month during that month. So they clarified that to say, we have to continue the weekly reporting through December of 2024. And then after that, at this point in time, now that's a far ways off, but at this point in time, they're predicting that then we will, you will still have to report this information, but you will only have to report it one week per month to stay um, consistent with the reporting requirements. And Kathy will drop a link in the chat. They did also post, because that section went live this week, they did post um, the updated form and directions for the form. So we'll post that in the chat so you have that. Thank you, Deb. Um, the next question says, I know it's recommended to get one bivalent vaccine to be considered up to date. Is it recommended to be given on a yearly basis? I can take this. Um, so at this time, getting one bivalent uh, vaccine is recommended for anyone over the age of six to be considered up to date. Um, there haven't been any new recommendations or whether this will be made into a yearly vaccination, but um, I'm sure before fall, we're thinking there might be new recommendations coming out and think it might become a yearly vaccination like the flu, but it's still to be determined. Thank you, Shirley. Mm -hmm. Next question. Does the infection preventionist have to be an RN? You're muted. Yeah, I realized that. I'm sorry, I'm on mute. Um, I can answer this question because I had this question come across and I followed up with our wonderful IP, Jen Brown, who gave me all this information. And in fact, an LPN can be an infection preventionist. And actually, the infection preventionist doesn't even have to be a nurse. Um, they could have training in other disciplines as well. And under F882 and the regulations, it actually states that. Um, while the facility does have to designate one or more individual has the infection preventionist, they can have primary professional training in nursing, medical technology, microbiology, epidemiology, or another related field, be qualified by education, training, experience, or certification, but they must work at least part-time at the facility and have completed specialized training in infection prevention and, con and control. And I know the nursing home that reached out to me with the question, they were interested in whether an LPN um, could, could be their infection preventionist. And if they have that education and training, particularly in infection prevention and control, they can do so. Thank you, Penny. 
The next question says, now that the public health emergency has ended, if a resident has a positive test, would that one positive test put us into an outbreak? Yes, and, and I can take that one too. Again, another question from a nursing home that I had. Um, and fortunately, PA Juan 7010606 came out um, June 6th with a definition of an outbreak in a long-term care facility. And it does say that greater than or equal to one facility acquired probable or confirmed COVID-19 case in a resident and greater than one probable or confirmed COVID-19 case in a healthcare personnel who was working in the facility while infectious. But now, you know, I said facility acquired probable for the resident. Probable case is actually defined in the HON, and that's a person meeting presumptive lab evidence. So that means they detected the SARS-CoV-2 specific antigen in a clinical or postmortem specimen using a diagnostic test performed by a CLIA certified provider. Um, and then facility, it says facility acquired COVID. So what that means for long-term care facility is that's a long-term care resident um, that where the, the COVID infection originated in the nursing home. And it doesn't refer to like those residents who were already had a known infection when they were admitted to the facility and then were placed in transmission-based precautions to prevent transmission to others. And it does not include residents who were placed into quarantine on admission and then developed SARS-CoV-2 infection while in that quarantine. Um, so you really want to make sure when and looking at the Han um, that you're paying attention to what some of those definitions mean. But yeah, it's because they had said, if I have even one, could it be uh, an infection? And it just depends on, you know, if they were within the facility, yes, they could be an infection. Okay, thank you. Um, and the next question is, uh, is is the COVID vaccine still mandatory now that the public health emergency has ended? So with the ending of the public health emergency, so ended the COVID mandate, though long-term care facilities must continue to educate residents, resident representatives, and staff about COVID-19 vaccines and make sure they're offering the COVID vaccine to the residents, resident representatives, and staff as well as completing the appropriate documentation for all of these educational activities. Although the COVID vaccine is no longer mandatory for healthcare staff, and I just pulled out um, some wording from the CMS final rule, and CMS says, in lieu of regulatory requirements, and as previously noted, CMS intends to continue support and encouragement for healthcare staff vaccinations through other mechanisms include quality including quality programs we encourage individuals to stay up to date with their covid vaccines in accordance with cdc recommendations so i would encourage everyone to continue educating around the importance of getting the vaccine as we go into the summer we want to make sure that everyone remains up to date with their vaccinations thank you Next question says, we are attempting to implement enhanced barrier precautions in our facility. Should these precautions be utilized during care with all dialysis residents? 
So there's still remains a little confusion around utilizing enhanced barrier precautions. And these precautions should be utilized during high contact resident care activities with residents who are infected or colonized with MDROs, have indwelling medical devices such as tracheostomies or central venous catheters, or if they have chronic wounds. So if a dialysis resident falls into any of these categories, then enhanced barrier precautions should be utilized during those high contact care activities. We just have to keep in mind that many dialysis residents do not have central venous catheters. Some some do, some do not. So enhanced barrier precautions should be utilized if a resident has an indwelling medical device. Thank you. So we just got a question in the Q&A that uh, is related to the vaccine question that you were answering just a minute ago. Mm-hmm. It says, is it specified how often we have to educate and offer the COVID vaccine? If resident or staff refuses, should we offer again annually or more frequently? So that's really interesting. And I have not come across any guidance. Maybe one of the other experts on the panel have come across guidance I would think that you just need to document that you have provided education. I would say at least once um, needs to be included in in that residence chart just to make sure that you've provided documentation. I think we're going to have infection control focus surveys coming up in the second half of 2023. And I think that they're going to be looking for this documentation. So I would ensure that it is included in every residence record. Okay, thank you. And we have uh, one more question here from our pre-submitted questions. So if anyone on the call today has a question they'd like us to discuss, this would be a good time to send it to us using either the chat or the Q&A tool. So this last question says, uh, I heard there is a new HHS entrance worksheet. Is this true? So yes, that is true. Um, To stay in line with the updated regulations and the PHE ending, the entrance worksheet um, has been updated. So at the bottom of the form that you're using, you want to make sure that the date is um, June of 2023. Thankfully, there's been nothing new that's been added, but there has been some areas that have been removed. And I kind of did a checks and balances and cross-reference. So the areas that have been moved is providing a list of COVID suspected and confirmed cases, staff responsible for your infection control program and your COVID vaccination efforts, staff responsible for notifying residents and their responsible parties for suspected or confirmed COVID cases and those responsible for water management. It removed all items related to notifying residents and their RPs for suspected or confirmed COVID cases and testing for COVID. And it removed the requirement um, for Department of Health staff vaccination uh, matrix. So I know we've gotten a lot of, I have gotten a lot of questions regarding, do we still need to do that staff vaccination matrix? Um, it's kind of goes with what Jennifer has said in the past with screening and taking temperatures of, at the door. One minute it's listed and now it's not listed. I've asked a number of um, subject matter experts to see if we can get any clarification and nobody will come outright and answer that question for us but I can tell you it's no longer on the entrance worksheet. So I do know a a number of facilities are stopping that. 
you still have your NHSN reporting. So you're still going to have, um, you know, the vaccination status for your staff. So I, again, I would say follow your facility policy. It's just like the notifying residents and RPs of suspected or confirmed COVID cases. It may not be on that entrance checklist, but I'm sure they're still going to want to see that somehow you're communicating to um, your residents and visitors, you know, what, what's going on in the building. So um, they're, they're no longer on the entrance worksheet, but still make sure that, that you are meeting the needs for any other infection control regulations and you're meeting what your policy states. So that's one thing that they've been very focused on is just because it's been removed from a PA HAN or a CMS QSO, does if you still have it in your policy and that's what your policy states you're going to do, you still have to do it. So just make sure with any changes that you're doing as these regulations change that you're making sure you review and update your policy and procedures. And I believe Kathy um, is going to drop that updated worksheet in the chat for you so you have a copy of it. Yep, that is in the chat now. Um, we have another, we got a submitted question about uh, enhanced barrier precautions. So I think this one's probably for Jean. If a resident has a pressure ulcer, but skin is intact, a suspected deep tissue injury, would enhanced barrier precautions still be required? So the recommendations for enhanced barrier precautions is if there is the, the for a wound. So it is assumed that the skin is not intact, that the that there's an open opening to the skin. So if we have just a DTI where we have intact skin, then I wouldn't think in that case, then enhanced barrier precautions need to be utilized. I think that you have to be really careful because once that wound opens up and, you know, then enhanced barrier precautions are probably going to be indicated in that case. And then a lot of our residents are colonized. So maybe also look into that if there's any documentation you can find to see if the resident might be colonized with an MDRO because then again, enhanced barrier precautions would apply. Okay, thank you. We don't have any more questions so far. So let's take a moment if anyone on the panel has anything they'd like to add before we wrap up here. I'll just remind everybody to be watching um, for their SNF Medicare claims audits. Every facility will be um, audited with five um, claims reviews. So just make sure you're watching for that. And those that are opening the mail, they know what to do with it when you get it. Um, but nobody will be excluded from that. So that is a um, CMS wide audit. So I do know that those have gone out and some have started to receive it. So just make sure that um, those getting the mail for you are are watching for that and, and you guys take care of them. Thank you, Deborah. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up if that's it for questions. And we hope you can, oh, I was going to wrap up. We got one more question that came in. Do you have any clarification regarding PPD versus staffing ratios? Is the staffing ratios based on the whole facility census or by unit only? Yeah, so I, I can take that. So um, we did have um, a webinar yesterday where Paula Sanders talked. We've have gotten some feedback from presentations that Susan Williamson has done for the state of Pennsylvania. And it is um, facility-wide for those ratios with the disclaimer to make sure that you are still meeting the needs of the residents. 
So if, if the ratio is one to 12 and you have a unit that has 15, just make sure that the needs of those 15, if you only have one staff member on that unit is still being met. So you have to, they're saying, you know, make sure you're looking at your facility assessment, the needs of the resident on that unit and taking all of that into consideration. But from a purely number standpoint, they're looking at the facility as a whole. Thank you, Deborah. I'd again like to thank our panelists for joining us here today and to thank all of you for joining us. And we hope to see you all back here again next week.